Hello, golems and ghouls, and welcome to another episode of my Haunted Life podcast with me, your host, Angela Hartshorn. How is everyone doing today? I hope you are all having a wonderful day and are enjoying life. I just got back from New Orleans, and I'm rather exhausted still. It was a bit of a whirlwind since I was only there from Friday evening. Well, Saturday morning, thanks to Southwest delays through Monday evening. But Hexfest, as always, is a lovely time with a lot of lovely people. Big shout out to my buddies Crystal and Josh over at Urza Metals and Dark Matter Oddities for taking the time to do dinner and drinks with me on Saturday. I also want to shout out Gallows Hill Witchery, Witchway Magazine, and Dark Candles. I didn't know it, but a lot of my past articles on ghost hunting and spirit work got published in Witchway's annual Spirit Guide issue, I believe number five, I think. I'll have a video up on my TikTok shortly of that because I'm really excited about it. I got the issue to frame. It's going to go in the podcast area. Also, special shout out to my new buddies at Dark Candles that have all of these amazing ghost-inspired scents. So I'll do a talk TikTok on those as well. Also, if I sound more gravelly than usual... It's because the smoke here from the river fire out in California is really thick and it's making me rather hoarse. I hope if you are being affected by this fire that you are safe and I am thinking of you. This week I'm finishing up my deep dive into the Devil Made Me Do It case. It's amazing to think after two episodes we still still haven't gotten to the murder and the court case. Spoiler alert, if you didn't know, there's a murder coming. I left off last week with Ed and Lorraine Warren coming in to help the Glatzel family with David's possession and trying to convince the church it was time for an exorcism. I realized that while I was editing, that I had about three different pronunciations of the Glatzel family name. Sorry about that. I was immensely tired while recording, but I don't think that should happen from here on out. You know, now that's the last episode. This week, I'm going into the murder, the court case, and what happened to everyone after. So let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea, Make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you. Everything went quiet after the last minor rite of exorcism of David when he had become fully possessed on the night of September 8th. Well, for a little, 
while, like like a week, the demon was quiet, but made his presence known very shortly. No one talked about the possession or the exorcisms. Like, nobody knew. The community as a whole did not know what was happening in the little farmhouse in Brookfield. The church even decreed the details to be the status of confessional, meaning that it became confidential, privileged information, never to be spoken about publicly. The family and the Warrens hadn't said anything yet. So nobody nobody knew this was happening. This, this was a very contained incident. Debbie and Arnie decided they needed a break. And it was time again to find their own place. The two moved into an apartment adjacent to the kennels where Debbie worked as a dog groomer. I'm not 100% sure where her son Jason was, if he came with them, or for the time being stayed with his grandparents. I'm not sure. But uh, her boss and now landlord, Alan Bono, welcomed the couple with open arms, and they all became really fast friends. They would hang out. Debbie described Bono as a very nice man. He had just spent 17 years in Australia and had been back for about a year. So he would regale the couple with stories of his adventures over beers at night. Debbie got this feeling that he was very lonely and depressed. He drank too much, but overall seemed like a great guy. Because he was lonely and a bachelor, he apparently liked going out to eat and not cooking for himself. And he would do this almost every night. Sometimes lunch, too. And he would take anyone that wanted to go with him. He just really wanted friends. Bono managed the property for his brother-in-law, the Kennels, and he hated every second of it. He was not a fan of animals, and the kennels were filthy, and the animals weren't being taken care of properly. Also, this could be a side effect of his drinking as well. Debbie actually had turned down the job offer at first because of this, but when Bono called back and offered a free apartment, she really couldn't turn it down. Besides, Arnie and Debbie needed to start saving for the wedding, which they were planning in spring. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of details about the kennel. It was bad. <laughs> um, you can find those details in the book, Devil in Connecticut. It, I, I didn't want to touch on that. Out of everything, I didn't want to... I, I touched on. That was one. I didn't want to go into. According to Debbie, Arnie started going into trances and having hallucinations and then not have any, any memory of them. He started to have weird bouts of possession of the demon. Remember, Arnie was the one during David's exorcisms 
that totally called out the demon and basically told him, take me instead. Leave my little buddy, buddy alone. You know, if you're a real man, step up to me, that kind of thing. Totally challenged the demon and offered himself up. So, shit's about to go down. And I'm like, I'm trying to imagine these bouts of depression, uh, possession. It just is weird. Uh, they usually started with a seizure and never lasted long, but Arnie's face would contort to that same sneering grin that Debbie knew all too well, seeing that it on David's face numerous times. It, it would just look at her, or Arnie would just look at her and sneer, and she would, she knew. And it was terrifying. She also said, like, the energy would change, it felt colder. It was weird. She had no idea how to explain it. And then it would just fade away. Arnie would have no memory of these occurrences. And Debbie had never seen him get violent before this. Arnie had no violent tendencies in him. Uh, if you remember in the previous episode, Ed and Lorraine described him as your basic all-American boy, loved fishing, loved baseball, good guy. This is the guy that would stay up with his girlfriend's brother to help him with this horrible ordeal. He sounds overall like a really decent guy. And then everything changed. On February 16th, 1981, Arnie woke up not feeling particularly good and decided to call off work, which was very rare for Arnie. After getting some aspirin and a little more sleep, he woke up feeling a little bit better. Not great, but it seemed to take the edge off a little bit. Arnie's younger sisters came to stay with them since they had had a long weekend off of school. I think it was Washington's birthday, which abused me because I feel like a lot of people that might listen to the podcast might know it a little bit more as President's Day. But way back when, we had Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday off. And then they combined them. Just saying. Remember at this time also... The Johnson family, Arnie's family, was kind of in this turmoil over that rental house and had really, they weren't, they didn't have a great relationship with Arnie and Debbie at this point since they had left that situation. And Arnie really wanted to repair the ties with his family. Which was already, it was one of those when you got your family together, it was like nothing happened. The sisters, probably because they're younger, but still, they were just 
so excited to see their big brother and Debbie again, who was basically like their big sister already. Arnie and Debbie and Arnie's younger sisters had gone to a pizza place or for hamburgers, depending on your source, with Alan Bono. And from all reports, it had been quite a lovely day. For a bit. Bono had been drinking too much, but that didn't seem that out of the ordinary. Some reports say that Debbie and Arnie came home to their landlord, Alan Bono, drinking. And some reports say that Arnie and Debbie were drinking with him too. In other stories, Arnie and Debbie and Arnie's sisters were figuring out dinner with Bono. Uh, They were supposed to go to the Glatzel family home for dinner that night, but Bono talked them into staying with him. So they ordered pizza? One way or another, something like that occurred. Bono continued drinking and became more and more obnoxious and started to turn a little bit violent. He turned up the radio insanely loud and then went to turn on the TV. And when it didn't work, he started shouting and hitting it. He then punched a hole in the plaster. And at this point, Debbie decided she wanted to take the girls home or at least to her parents' house to get them away from this because she didn't feel like it was right for these little girls to have to deal with this. When they got up to leave, Bono got insanely irritated and refused to let them leave. Like, he, like, barred them. He would stand in front of them, that sort of thing. Debbie and Arnie were the first out the door. When Debbie was holding the door open for the girls, she looked at Arnie and realized it wasn't Arnie anymore. Staring back at her was the same sneering face she knew all too well. Suddenly, Arnie attacked Debbie. He got her to the ground and started kicking her. Debbie was sure she was going to be killed. The attack on Debbie stopped when Leah, Arnie's oldest sister, who was 15, came out and saw what was happening and screamed for her brother to stop. And in some stories, she also, you know, literally tried to pull him off of her. She said she knew it wasn't her brother. His face was oddly contorted, and he looked like the Incredible Hulk. Bono, still blocking the other girls from leaving from at the top of the stairs. He would not let the younger girls come down. He grabbed the arm of the youngest, Jennifer, who I was, I believe was only nine. And he held her so tight that she cried out in pain and then refused to let her go until everyone came back inside with him. Debbie screamed at him to stop and pulled his hair and that was enough for him to finally let go of the little girl. 
Debbie told the two youngest to run to the car and not to get back out. With the little girl freed, Bono turned his attention to Arnie and started a fight with him. Yelling, screaming, that sort of thing, getting into his face, bumping into him. And then it came to blows. Debbie and Leah tried to separate the men, but to no avail. And then Debbie saw the change in Arnie. Arnie let out a horrible, guttural, growl, scream thing. It was really strange. And she said that Bono just collapsed. According to Debbie, Arnie didn't even touch him. Arnie, I should say, Debbie and Leah. He hadn't even touched him. He did this weird scream and Bono just collapsed. And then Arnie left. He took off to the back of the house. Debbie and Leah rushed to Bono, fearing he had had a heart attack, which would make sense. They both started screaming for help, and they didn't know what to do. But on closer inspection, they realized Bono was bleeding. Debbie says that it appeared that Arnie was not close enough to stab Bono, remember? It was almost like he just crumbled before her eyes, but it appeared that Bono had been stabbed multiple times all of a sudden. It was one of those, she's looking at his chest and the blood spots just kind of start forming. At least two, mind you. Arnie had stabbed Bono, or the demon, with a five-inch pocket knife, or Bowie knife, I've, a knife. There's multiple sightings on this one. According to the little sisters, the ones that did not see the actual stabbing, the knife had actually started glowing. Like, it was just weird. There, there it was on the ground, glowing. And I've seen reports where it's like a white light, and then I saw another one where it's like a purple. Either way, these girls are citing that the knife is glowing. At this point, Debbie didn't know what to do. She was so scared. Her, She just was in shock. So she called her parents for help. When her parents arrived... Her father ran into the house and called the police when he discovered that no one had done that yet. When paramedics arrived, they loaded Bono into an ambulance. The first paramedics, like Debbie, saw two stab wounds. Bono, however, died on the way to the hospital that night. Upon arrival, they found four stab wounds and one of these went from his stomach up to his heart and I guess there was a a stab wound in his heart I don't know if this was the same one there was also a non-lethal stab wound on his shoulder upon uh, review at the time of his death, Bono had a 3.3 blood alcohol level. 
The police immediately started searching for Arnie. Oddly enough, the ambulance driver that had taken Bono to the hospital was the one that found Arnie, only about a mile from the scene, just wandering in a daze. And according to Arnie, he had no memory of anything. Uh, he told the ambulance driver that he thought he might have hurt someone, but couldn't remember. Apparently, the only thing he said to the ambulance driver, according to another report, was, Please help me. He was arrested at 7.25 p.m. without resistance and taken to jail where he babbled incoherently until he passed out. He was charged with first-degree murder. His bail was set at $125,000, one of the highest bails set at the time in Connecticut. So what happened? Why why was the beast still around after all of this? Things really truly did not quiet down for the family after all the minor rites of exorcism. They were still completely plagued by violence amongst themselves. Police were called to the Glatzel home once sometimes twice a week. A lot of this violence came from Carl Jr. Once he was going to be taken to a juvenile detention center, but Lorraine Warren actually stepped in on his behalf and he was able to stay home. I don't know fully what that entailed, but that's what the book said. Mary Johnson, remember, Arnie's mom and her girls had actually ran from the house that they were renting on October 14th since they could no longer handle what was happening. The girls were so scared they refused to enter the home without their mother being there with them. They went back to Bridgeport. And all of this because they couldn't get a major rite of exorcism from the church. Remember, they had been collecting all this information and documenting everything to show this. The priest apparently also asked for it, and the church never sanctioned it. As Ed Warren described it, it was all because of procedure. The priest never got to do a full rite of exorcism, so they were able to remove the demon from David's body, but they were never able to get rid of the demon. He was not bound and sent back to hell. He was basically released from David and just hung around, causing havoc in the house. According to Ed Warren, Instead, diocesan officials 
accountable only to themselves, stood aloof. The devil in Connecticut, in our diocese, no one must know. Their way was to do too little too late. After September 2nd, when the need for correct procedure was critical, the diocese still refused to grant authority, either for major exorcism or for an exorcist, an older man, pious and with the gift of discernment, who has commanded the devil before to be brought in to perform the task. Because of pride or politics or lack of interest, this enormous job was left in the hands of four young priests in the field, and they got hurt because of it. Had someone in the chancery gotten off their throne and observed the great evil that was taking place in Brookfield, some positive move might have resulted. But what took place instead were two otherwise dedicated attempts at lesser exorcism. The result of these deliverance procedures was to stop the entity from possessing David. But the thing was not bound and expelled. It remained free to possess another. Disaster was not stopped. It was only deferred. Further exorcism was required, but unbelievably, the chancery closed the book on the case at that point. Father Vergalac was taken off the case in late September and sent to Rome, as Father Carberina had been. The local priests were instructed to return to their regular duties. The policy diocesan officials adopted was that if the entity wasn't possessing David, then their job was done, and they stuck with that position. Instead of cooperation came hostility. Instead of peace came tragedy. A metaphysical time bomb was left ticking. And remember, Ed and Lorraine are devote Catholics. So they're literally coming out against their Catholic church. Maybe not theirs, but local enough. Ones that they had worked with in the past because they disagreed with how they handled this. And the family felt the same way. Judy summed it up very simply. The church abandoned us. After the murder, Judy said they were abandoned a second time by the church. I'd go to the rectory and they wouldn't even answer the door. I was reduced to stealing my own communion wafer. I'd save it, bring it home, and give it to David in the hope God would help him. After being shut out by the Catholic Church, the Warrens and the Glatzels got desperate and actually left the country to get help. They went to Quebec to get help where it also discovered 
how this whole thing started. And I'll get into that coming up because it's a story. But right now, I want to focus on what was really kind of going on culturally at this time to make this case so relevant. Arnie Johnson knifed his landlord to death. 19-year-old Arnie Cheyenne Johnson is charged with the knifing murder of his landlord. Stabbed Alan Bono to death. Arnie Johnson is in prison on $125,000 bail. He is accused of murder. We're going to take the devil to court. The words of Ed and Lorraine Warren, noted demonologists. He will plead innocent because he was possessed by the devil at the time he committed the crime. The satanic panic was a cultural phenomenon that caused people to see evil satanists and dark witchcraft all over the place. Most people know the term satanic panic because people started claiming that occult themes in rock music or subliminal messages were heard on rock albums when the album was played backwards attempting to corrupt children or convincing them to kill themselves. Though we might chuckle at this ridiculously odd idea now, we have to remember it was an immensely destructive time for many people. It is described as a modern-day witch hunt with many people drawing parallels between the Satanic Panic era and the hysteria surrounding the witch trials in Salem in 1692. There are a lot of factors that led to the satanic panic. Many people believe it was a culmination of factors, fear over the lost morality of the country with ideas of free love and the drug culture from the 60s and 70s, as well as the protest and marches for civil rights, women's rights, and events like Stonewall caused people to see violence on the news frequently, combined with events like the Manson murders and the publication of the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey. And even the release of The Exorcist, the movie with Linda Blair, made people see devils everywhere. Actually, there was a resurgence in the church there for a little bit because of the exorcist movies scaring the hell out of people, as it were. Literally, even Procter and Gamble were boycotted because people believed their logo, which has 13 stars and a moon, was satanic and ended up in court over it. According to Procter and Gamble, though, the stars were for the original 13 colonies. But they went to court. Or I, I, it's fascinating. The whole thing's fascinating. But again, people literally had their lives ruined by this hysteria. If you want to do a very sad, deep dive into this, look into the West Memphis Three. 
Another perfect example of this is the McMartin preschool case. Long story short, because this case is very well documented, I don't want to spend too much time on it, a family-owned and run preschool was accused of systematic ritual abuse of children, including molestation, trafficking, and even murder, all in the name of the devil. One of the bizarre claims, and remember, preschoolers were the ones telling these stories, was the children would be flushed down the toilet into underground tunnels where the abuse and satanic rituals were conducted. This might seem laughable. Literally, the story is they're getting flushed down toilets to these hidden hidden tunnels. But people believed this so much. The family that ran it and the workers of the McMartin Preschool were arrested. And again, there's a lot. There's a lot that I'm skipping over to paraphrase. But there's a lot. Some of the workers and families spent time in jail because they were denied bail because of the severity of the claimed crimes. After nearly a decade of court cases, everyone involved was acquitted because there just wasn't anything there. Most of the court cases ended in hung juries. The preschool was actually bulldozed years later to great fanfare trying to find the tunnels. There weren't any. They brought in an archaeologist to dig around. and They brought in ground-penetrating radar, and there wasn't anything found to suggest satanic anything. Rock music 
and the devil kind of go hand in hand, especially at this time. Mostly for shock value and attention, but there are some famous musicians who were actually into the cult, and oddly, some told people to veer away from it. Or, they eventually told people to veer away from it. Geezer Butler, the bassist from Black Sabbath, would hang upside-down crosses in his bedroom and invite things to come to him. One night they did. He said he woke up to a black figure at the foot of his bed pointing at him, telling him he needed to pick a side. I'm assuming between like heaven and hell. The next morning, he took down all the crosses and painted the room orange. Probably one of the most metal stories of all time. Nikki Six of Motley Crue changed the band's second album, Shout at the Devil, from Shout with the Devil, when he believed that dabbling in the occult and putting occult symbols on the band's stuff was causing strange occurrences in his house, such as cutlery being picked up and thrown across the room. In the book, The Devil in Connecticut, only a year before the Warrens were called into the Glatzel family home, they were asked to come and investigate an area on the Connecticut-New York border owned by a rock and roll musician who I could not find which one, where a police officer had been attacked by a mob in black robes where loud chanting music was heard, and what was thought to be black masses were being held. The Warrens discovered the remains of a ritualistic bonfire, what looked like animal sacrifices, ceremonial stakes on the ground, you know, classic things for your satanic ritual. No one thought much about it, though, because it seemed like they had all left. Until the singer came out later, about a year or so, I think, with a new genre of music called Satan Rock. Who exactly this was? Again, I don't know. But if you know, please let me know. I would love to figure out who this is because I'm so highly amused. Going back to the subliminal messages found in rock music, in December 1985, two young men, Raymond Belknap, who was 18, and James Vance, who was 20, spent several hours drinking, smoking marijuana, and listening to Judas Priest's Stained Class album. According to Vance, the album convinced him and his friend to take a shotgun and shoot themselves. Raymond was killed instantly. Vance survived, but was permanently disfigured and lived in a severe amount of pain. Vance and his family tried to sue Judas Priest, claiming he didn't want to, but that he was programmed to do it. Three years later, before the trial was set to start, 
Vance slipped into a coma and died. I couldn't find what happened exactly, but one of the lawyers believed that it might have been a drug overdose. Judas Priest was later acquitted. I wanted to give you a little bit of the cultural background so you could understand the mindset of the era. It was the perfect time for a murder case referred to as the devil made me do it trial to take place. This thing captured national attention. Edward very much believed that the David Glatzel possession was due to witchcraft and Satanism. What is the reason that David oh, yes. was possessed in the first place? The reason David became possessed was because his mother and sister, unfortunately, were fooling around with witchcraft. They met a group of people mm -hmm. in upstate New York while they were uh, snowmobiling. And these people, from what we understand, were into satanic activities had them go back to their house that night and uh, for some reason they turned on the mother and uh, when Debbie and Arnie at home were looking for a rent the first time that the beast made itself known was in this small house in Brookfield mm -hmm. where David said that something pushed him onto the bed and he could see an old man and the description was a very high, very horrifying description. Well, mm -hmm. he, he said that, this is how he explained it. He explained that this man was standing there. He told about the plaid shirt the guy was wearing, told everything about the guy. But that night, what he could see in that house appeared in the Brookfield home, their own home, only now. This little 11-year-old kid, this is how he put it. He was there again in my bedroom, but now he looked all burnt, and he had feet like a deer. Oops. Oh, boy. That's an amazing case. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who's interested in knowing a little bit more about the case, this is the book that was written back in 1980 by Gerald Brittle and Edna Lorraine Warren, The Devil in Connecticut. Um, I read the book. It's a fascinating book. According to the book, The Devil in Connecticut, Debbie in high school had taken a class on witchcraft and astrology. It was the 70s and it was actually offered in her high school. Kind of jealous. She learned a little bit of things and you know wrote a paper about witchcraft but she said it was historical not ritualistic she also bought a ouija board and used it frequently she described the board as talkative and prissy awesome she had used the board with her mom arnie and other friends when she was pregnant with Jason, she asked the board details about the baby. Everything the board predicted came true. That she would have a boy and its weight to the exact ounce. But weird things started happening. 
like, the board asked her to make love to it. And she decided that was enough and got rid of it. And that was it. According to Lorraine, though, this opened up the family members to spiritual forces. As Lorraine called it, the law of invitation. In invitation, yeah. The law of invitation. The demon that was ruining the family might not have been the one that Debbie was talking to on the board, but they were now predisposed to supernatural occurrences because of it. This was the cultural atmosphere of the Devil May Do It case. This was the first time in 139 years that this small little town had had a murder. It was a big deal. Like I said, it made national news and everybody was pretty shook about it. Lawyer Martin Manella took the case pro bono. The courts have dealt with the existence of God, Martin Manella said. They are going to have to deal with the existence of the devil. This was the first time a person used demonic possession as a murder defense. Quick sidebar, Martin Manella's great line there is actually used in the Conjuring 3 movie, but it's said by uh, Patrick Wilson, a.k.a. Ed Warren. Just figured I should let you guys know that. This was about the time Judy and Debbie decided to go public with the story. Lorraine and Ed were prepared to present all their evidence in court. According to Ed, Arnie's attorney, who took the case at no charge after seeing the murder written up in newspapers, asked a projective juror if he believed in God. The juror answered yes. Then the attorney, testing the waters, how about the other way? Do you believe in the devil too? The gavel came down and the proceedings were stopped. Judge Robert J. Carlyle, Gallagher, something like that, would not allow a defense of not guilty due to demonic possession. He just thought this was too outlandish and he did not want to deal with this in his court. So he did what he could to avoid this. Arnie's lawyer argued his client's right to a fair trial the right of the accused to present any defense that proves innocence, the inacable. I can't say that. The fact that Insanity did not apply in this case. And finally, 
that the evidence of possession was critical in Arnie's case because it affected his client's intention to commit a crime, the very basis of the murder law. The judge listened, the judge listened obligingly, then rejected all the defense attorney's points. He contended that possession couldn't be proved, that it didn't affect intent, that demonology is not a science but a hobby, and most incredible of all, that the notion of diabolical possession was irrelevant to the crime of which Arnie was charged. The judge said that he wasn't willing to say that demonic possession didn't exist even before the pri- even before the trial started Arnie's lawyer's defense was thrown out the window he just believed that you couldn't the judge just believed you couldn't prove possession so they had to pivot and change the plea to not guilty due to self defense Ed Warren was particularly miffed by this. You know, the judge, if the judge had let us bring in our evidence, which were recordings, photographs, eyewitness accounts, and the priests, the priests were waiting outside of the courthouse in Danbury, Connecticut, to go into that courthouse and testify that what occurred to this young boy and Arnie Johnson was indeed diabolical possession but I could understand the judge's feelings too mm-hmm. he didn't want to be known as the judge who allowed the devil made me do it case into his courtroom right okay I guess this is an article that talks about you devil and... made him do it okay. and the devil did make him do it oh mm-hmm. yeah we were Arnie all... Johnson was under diabolical possession he didn't know what happened for at least two hours and that two hours he had killed Alan Bono. This young man wouldn't hurt anyone or anything. You have to know Arnie Johnson like we knew him. Mm-hmm. Very polite, uh, very good living young man, very hard working. He worked until 5 o'clock, landscaping, cutting trees, have his supper, go to bed until 11. Then he'd get up and he'd step all night long, with holding this young boy down. He would sit. That he would have David sleep next to him so that the family, the parents, Judy and Carl Glotzel, this took a terrible toll on this family. You cannot believe the emotional and physical toll. I, I always said that if a court would allow us to bring our evidence into this guy, that, that there is uh, the, the lawyer, the, the, Martin Manella, yeah. and uh, he put his position uh, in jeopardy as a lawyer by going in on this case. But he knew that the boy mm-hmm. was possessed. He felt we could win the case, never knowing that the judge would not allow us to bring in our evidence. Mm-hmm. But Lorraine and I set a precedent in 1990 in which we did win a case where a, a woman was driven out of a house in Hebron, Connecticut. That was haunted by ghosts. We would have won this case too. And Arnie Johnson would have not gone to prison. Mm-hmm. 
The trial got underway October 28, 1982, only a few days before Halloween, at the Danbury Superior Courthouse. Arnie refused to plead guilty, saying that he did not remember the crime. The prosecution stated that the death was due to a drunken brawl over a love triangle between Arnie, Debbie, and Bono. This is something Debbie has vehemently denied. All of Arnie's sisters were brought to the stand to testify. And what they said in court was different from what they first told police. The night of the murder, the two girls, the two youngest, hadn't seen any of the event. But the police officer that took their statements made it look rather incriminating. The girls testified that only one officer took their statements. There was not another officer there to collaborate it, nor were they recorded. The girls even said that the officer read them back his stuff that he had written down, and they wanted to correct things he had written or change things, and the officer refused. The young girls were also interrogated without their mother present. Jennifer actually was forced to sign her statement, the nine-year-old, without being able to read most of it. They said the police tricked them into saying that they had seen Arnie stabbed Bono, but now claimed they hadn't seen it at all. They also stated how their brother made terrifying noises. They were threatened with perjury for not conforming to their initial statements, and when they stood their ground, they were labeled as hostile witnesses. Supposedly, weird things happened in the courthouse during the trial. The lights in the courtroom would flicker. Lorraine told reporters that the devil had been messing with the jurors. There's even a story of the son of one of the jurors having been hit by a car. But that's about it. On November 20th, the trial went into the hands of the jury. And after a couple days, they were deadlocked. The judge was not happy about this and sent them back to find a verdict with that a majority agreed to. On November 24th, the jury came back. Arnie was found not guilty of first-degree murder, which, awesome, but he was convicted of second-degree manslaughter of Bono. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. In some articles, I saw 30. It's a lot. The Warrens claimed that because the Catholic Church did not act quick enough to get David his major rite of exorcism, that a life was lost. The church claimed that they had never heard of Arnie Johnson. 
The Warrens claimed that the Catholic Church did not act quick enough to get David his major right of exorcism, and because of that, a life was lost. The church claimed that they had never heard of Arne Johnson, and the priests were scattered and told not to talk to the press. This upset the Warrens, especially Ed, and he lashed out at the archdiocese. The beast, through David, was said to brag about the murder and Arnie being in prison, and David's attacks continued. Through the trial, the Warrens and Glatzels felt abandoned by their local church. But the Warrens didn't give up. They knew a priest in Quebec, Canada, a Father Duchamps, that could perform a rite of exorcism, commonly called the laying of hands. The Warrens submitted an 18-page report to him detailing David's possession, and they were approved. On November 7th in 1982 in Quebec, David was finally completely exercised of his demons. It only took 30 minutes. During the exorcism, havoc ensued in the little church. Windows were broken out and doors were slamming. Another priest, a Father McEwen, acted as medium during the session and allowed the beast to talk through him. We kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, the gift of discernment. That is what Ed really wanted the church to send in. They got that in Canada. The beast stated that there was not 42 demons in David, but there was only one. And its name is Beelzebub. Y'all might have heard this name. It's kind of a big deal. He's an archdevil. He's supposed to be the devil's number two right-hand man. The priests also were able to determine where the possession started. According to the priests, the family had been cursed by friends that they had met years ago while uh, snowmobiling. Turns out these guys were a part of a satanic death cult, which would be a really good band name, just saying. They said the Satanists needed an innocent soul, so the ritual they conducted targeted the oldest and youngest sons of the Glatzel family, Carl Jr. and David. It chose to possess David because he was the weaker of the two. The curse had been put on the family on February 16th. Just one year later, Arnie killed Alan Bono. So how does a family, or anyone in particular, survive such an ordeal? How does one carry on? How do you move past it? Well, you kind of don't in a way. Everybody from this incident seems to be permanently scarred in one way or another. So what was the outcome of that trial? 
Well, the outcome was that uh, Arnie couldn't, we couldn't use the defense of the devil made him do it, so they, I think it was manslaughter. Yes, because and, uh, he served very Arnie little got, time. Uh, four years, but I think he only did uh, two years of that. And you couldn't keep a young man like this in prison for something he didn't do. No, and his behavior was excellent. But Tony, he was, he, him and Debbie were married in prison. Oh, they were. They, were, they, they have they, a business together. They today. They offer today. They're, they have they're two, happy. They have two sons. They're normal. Everything's normal. Oh, yes. Very normal. Oh, they're now, very how about normal. David? Is David doing okay? David, David works with his dad. Very normal. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's fine. Young man today, I guess, uh, soon to be married or whatever he's going to be doing. Yeah. David Glatzel's current whereabouts are unknown. According to a 2021 report, his older brother Carl, Carl Jr., claims that the entire demonic possession incident was a hoax and that David struggled over the years while dealing with the media attention. Per another 2021 report, Carl Jr. states that David has moved on and recovered from mental health issues. In 2007, the brothers have filed a lawsuit against the Warrens and Gerald Britter, the author of The Devil in Connecticut, for violating their privacy, libel, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. And Brittle, if you get into any of the Warren stuff, you see him a lot. He worked with the Warrens to write this book. Even though David Glassell has reportedly moved on and does not talk to the Warrens, his sister Debbie maintained a friendship with Lorraine until Lorraine's death in 2019. According to Carl Jr., however, that might have been the result of a mutually beneficial financial partnership as the Warrens confirmed that the family was initially paid $2,000 after the 1983 publication of The Devil in Connecticut. Today, that is about $5,455.74. That doesn't seem like a lot to tear everyone apart. Carl has spoken on behalf of his brother, according to him, and plans to release a book about their experiences. While in prison, Arnie was visited by the Beast several times, including on the anniversary of Bono's death, where the demon actually stabbed him. Debbie married Arnie while he was in prison. Arnie served less than five years and was released early for good behavior. They went off and started a company together and had three children. Actually, Arnie and Debbie, when the movie started filming Conjuring 3, they had actually visited the set. According to the actors that played them, in the movie, they were a lot like them. Rory O'Connor, 
described Arnie as rather quiet and shy and since he also was rather quiet and shy, they didn't talk too much. According to Sarah Catherine Hook, who played Debbie, they are both friendly, bubbly personalities and the two became fast friends and continued to be so. Debbie passed away in April 2021 from cancer. Ed and Lorraine, along with their writer, documented everything in the book, The Devil in Connecticut, in 1983. Lawyers for the church had the books recalled and destroyed because it revealed the actual names of people involved and apparently released church secrets. The book has been re-released with The Conjuring 3 coming out with the names changed, and I'm assuming the secret's taken out. Thank you to everyone out there listening today. I really appreciate it, and I hope you liked this one. I was not prepared for all the information I found, so I hope it was worth the wait. Y'all are a bunch of just sexy, demonic beasts, let me tell you. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast for when the rest of the episodes come out, you get notified and you don't miss a single one. If you like the show, please tell your friends and family about it. Word of mouth goes a long way. If you have a ghost story to share, don't forget to drop me a line at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow My Haunted Life Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Everything is My Haunted Life Podcast. I try to keep it simple. Don't forget that we also have a My Haunted Life Podcast Facebook page where we have a lot of fun. Kayla is just on those memes, let me tell you. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, please subscribe to the Patreon page. You can support the show for as little as $2 a month. It's not much. It's less than a coffee. And that's it for this show. I'll see you all next week on my Haunted Life podcast. And... After these episodes, I hope you can sleep. Pleasant dreams.